0: Section five of Montcalmon Wolf by Francis Parkman. This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two Part two As they neared the town the Indians swarmed to the shore and began the usual salute of musketry. They fired, says Celeron, full a thousand shots, for the English give them powder for nothing. He prudently pitched his camp on the farther side of the river, posted guards, and kept close watch. Each party distrusted and feared the other. At length, after much ado, many debates, and some threatening movements on the part of the alarmed and excited Indians, a council took place at the tent of the French commander, the chiefs apologizing for the rough treatment of John Care, and Celeron replied with a rebuke which would doubtless have been less mild had he felt himself stronger. He gave them also a message from the governor, modified apparently to suit the circumstances, for while warning them of the wiles of the English, it gave no hint that the King of France claimed mastery of their lands. Their answer was vague and unsatisfactory. It was plain that they were bound to the enemy by interest, if not by sympathy. A party of English traders were living in the place, and Saleron summoned them to withdraw on pain of what might ensue. My instructions, he says, enjoined me to do this, and even to pillage the English, but I was not strong enough, and as these traders were established in the village, and well supported by the Indians, the attempt would have failed, and put the French to shame. The assembled chiefs, having been regaled with a cup of brandy each, the only part of the proceeding which seemed to please them. Celeron re-embarked and continued his voyage. On the thirtieth, they reached the great Miami, called by the French Riviere a la Roche, and here Celeron buried the last of his leaden plates. They now bade farewell to the Ohio, or, in the words of the chaplain, to la Belle Riviere, that river so little known to the French and unfortunately too well known to the english he speaks of the multitude of indian villages on its shores and still more on its northern branches each great or small has one or more english traders and each of these has hired men to carry his furs behold then the english well advanced upon our lands and what is worse under the protection of a crowd of savages whom they have drawn over to them and whose number increases daily the course of the party lay up the miami and they toiled thirteen days against the shallow current before they reached a village of the miami indians lately built at the mouth of the rivulet now called loramy creek over it ruled a chief to whom the french had given the singular name of la demoiselle but whom the english whose fast friend he was called old britain the english traders who lived here had prudently withdrawn leaving only two hired men in the place the object of celeron was to introduce the demoiselle and his band to leave this new abode and return to their old villages near the French fort on the Moormee, where they would be safe from English seduction. To this end he called them to a council, gave them ample gifts, and made them an harangue in the name of the governor. The demoiselle took the gifts, thanked the French father for his good advice, and promised to follow it at a more convenient time. In vain, Saloran insisted that he and his tribesmen should remove at once. Neither blandishments nor threats would prevail, and the French commander felt that his negotiation had failed. He was not deceived. Far from leaving his village, the Demoiselle, who was great chief of the Miami Confederacy, gathered his followers to the spot, till... Less than two years after the visit of Celeron, its population had increased eightfold. Peak Town, or Picawillany as the English called it, became one of the greatest Indian towns of the West, the centre of English trade and influence, and a capital object of French jealousy. Celeron burned his shattered canoes, and led his party across the long and difficult portage to the French post on the Maumee, where he found Raymond, the commander, and all his men, shivering with fever and ague. They supplied him with wooden canoes for his voyage down the river, and early in October he reached Lake Erie, where he was detained for a time by a drunken debauch of his Indians who are called by the chaplain, a species of men made to exercise the patience of those who have the misfortune to travel with them. In a month more he was at Fort Frontenac, and as he descended thence to Montreal, he stopped at the Oswegatchie, in obedience to the governor who had directed him to report the progress made by the Sulpician, Abbé Piquet, at his new mission. Piquet's new fort had been burned by Indians, prompted, as he thought, by the English of Oswego, but the priest, buoyant and undaunted, was still resolute for the glory of God and the confusion of the heretics. At length Celeron reached Montreal, and closing his journal, wrote thus, Father Bonnecamp, who is a Jesuit and a great mathematician, reckons that we have traveled twelve hundred leagues i and my officers think we have traveled more all i can say is that the nations of these countries are very ill-disposed towards the french and devoted entirely to the english if his expedition had done no more it had at least revealed clearly the deplorable condition of the french interests in the west while Celeron was warning English traders from the Ohio, a plan was on foot in Virginia for a new invasion of the French domain. An association was formed to settle in the Ohio country, and a grant of 500,000 acres was procured from the King, on condition that a hundred families should be established upon it within seven years. A fort built, and a garrison maintained. The Ohio Company numbered among its members some of the chief men of Virginia, including two brothers of Washington, and it also had a London partner, one Hanbury, a person of influence, who acted as its agent in England. In the year after the expedition of Celeron, its governing committee sent the trader Christopher Gist to explore the country and select land. It must be good level land, wrote the committee. We had rather go quite down to the Mississippi than take mean broken land. In November Gist reached Logstown, the Chinigue of Celeron, where he found what he calls a parcel of reprobate indian traders those whom he so stigmatizes were pennsylvanians chiefly scotch-irish between whom and the traders from virginia there was great jealousy gist was told that he should never go home safe he declared himself the bearer of a message from the king this imposed respect and he was allowed to proceed at the Wyandotte village of Muskingum, he found the trader, George Croan, sent to the Indians by the governor of Pennsylvania to renew the chain of friendship. Croan, he says, is a mere idol among his countrymen, the Irish traders. Yet they met amicably, and the Pennsylvanian had with him a companion, Andrew Montour, the interpreter who proved of great service to Gist. As Montour was a conspicuous person in his time, and a type of his class, he merits a passing notice. He was the reputed grandson of a French governor and an Indian squaw. His half-breed mother, Catherine Montour, was a native of Canada, whence she was carried off by the Iroquois and adopted by them she lived in a village at the head of seneca lake and still held the belief inculcated by the guides of her youth that christ was a frenchman crucified by the english her son andrew is thus described by the moravian zinzendorf who knew him his face is like that of a european but marked with a broad indian ring of bear's grease and paint drawn completely round it he wears a coat of fine cloth of cinnamon color a black necktie with silver spangles a red satin waistcoat trousers over which hangs his shirt shoes and stockings a hat and brass ornaments something like the handle of a basket suspended from his ears he was an excellent interpreter, and held in high account by his Indian kinsmen. After leaving Muskingum, Gist, Croan and Montour went together to a village on White Woman's Creek, so called from one Mary Harris who lived here. She was born in New England, was made prisoner when a child forty years before, and had since dwelt among her captors, finding such comfort as she might in an Indian husband and a family of young half-breeds. She still remembers, says Gist, that they used to be very religious in New England, and wonders how white men can be so wicked as she has seen them in these woods. He and his companions now journeyed southwestward to the Shawano Town at the mouth of the Scioto, where they found a reception very different from that which had awaited Celeron. thence they rode northwestward along the forest path that led to pickawillany the Indian town on the upper waters of the Great Miami. Gist was delighted with the country and reported to his employers that it is fine rich, level land, well-timbered with large walnut, ash, sugar-trees, and cherry-trees, well-watered with a great number of little streams and rivulets, full of beautiful natural meadows, with wild rye, bluegrass, and clover, and abounding with turkeys, deer, elk, and most sorts of game, particularly buffaloes, thirty or forty of which are frequently seen in one meadow a little farther west on the plains of the wabash and the illinois he would have found them by thousands they crossed the miami on a raft their horses swimming after them and were met on landing by a crowd of warriors who after smoking with them escorted them to the neighboring town where they were greeted by a fusillade of welcome we entered with english colours before us and were kindly received by their king who invited us into his own house and set up our colours upon the top of it then all the white men and traders that were there came and welcomed us this king was old britain or la demoiselle Great were the changes here since Celeron, a year and a half before, had vainly enticed him to change his abode, and dwell in the shadow of the fleur-de-lis. The town had grown to four hundred families, or about two thousand souls, and the English traders had built for themselves and their hosts a fort of pickets strengthened with logs. There was a series of councils in the Long House, or Town Hall. Crowan made the Indians a present from the Governor of Pennsylvania, and he and Gist delivered speeches of friendship and good advice, which the auditors received with the usual monosyllabic plaudits, ejected from the depths of their throats. A treaty of peace was solemnly made between the English and the Confederate tribes, and all was serenity and joy, till four Ottawas, probably from Detroit, arrived with a French flag, a gift of brandy and tobacco, and a message from the French Commandant inviting the Miamis to visit him, whereupon the great war-chief rose and with a fierce tone and very warlike air, said to the envoys, Brothers the Ottawas, we let you know by these four strings of wampum that we will not hear anything the French say, nor do anything they bid us. Then addressing the French as if actually present, Fathers, we have made a road to the sun rising, and have been taken by the hand by our brothers the english the six nations the delawares the shawanoes and wyandots we assure you in that road we will go and as you threaten us with war in the spring we tell you that we are ready to receive you then turning again to the four envoys brothers the ottawas you hear what i say tell that to your fathers the french for we speak it from our hearts. The chiefs then took down the French flag which the Ottawas had planted in the town, and dismissed the envoys with their answer of defiance. On the next day the town-crier came with a message from the demoiselle, inviting his English guests to a feather-dance, which Gist thus describes, it was performed by three dancing-masters, who were painted all over of various colors, with long sticks in their hands, upon the ends of which were fastened long feathers of swans and other birds, neatly woven in the shape of a fowl's wing. In this disguise they performed many antic tricks, waving their sticks and feathers about with great skill, to imitate the flying and fluttering of birds, keeping exact time with their music. This music was the measured thumping of an Indian drum. From time to time a warrior would leap up, and the drum and the dancers would cease as he struck a post with his tomahawk, and in a loud voice recounted his exploits. Then the music and dance began anew till another warrior caught the martial fire and bounded into the circle to brandish his tomahawk and vaunt his prowess on the first of march gist took leave of pickawillany and returned towards the ohio he would have gone to the falls where louisville now stands but for a band of french indians reported to be there who would probably have killed him after visiting a deposit of mammoth bones on the south shore, long the wonder of the traders, he turned eastward, crossed with toil and difficulty the mountains about the sources of the Kanawha, and after an absence of seven months reached his frontier home on the Yadkin, whence he proceeded to Roanoke with the report of his journey. All looked well for the English in the west, but under this fair outside lurked danger the miamis were hearty in the english cause and so perhaps were the Shawanoes. but the delawares had not forgotten the wrongs that drove them from their old abodes east of the alleghanies while the Mingoes, or emigrant iroquois like their brethren of new york felt the influence of joncaire and other french agents who spared no efforts to seduce them still more baneful to english interests were the apathy and dissensions of the british colonies themselves the ohio company had built a trading house at wills creek a branch of the potomac to which the indians resorted in great numbers whereupon the jealous traders of Pennsylvania told them that the Virginians meant to steal away their lands. This confirms what they had been taught by the French emissaries, whose intrigues it powerfully aided. The governors of New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia saw the importance of Indian alliances, and felt their own responsibility in regard to them but they could do nothing without their assemblies. Those of New York and Pennsylvania were largely composed of tradesmen and farmers, absorbed in local interests, and possessed by two motives, the saving of people's money and opposition to the governor, who stood for the royal prerogative. It was Hamilton of Pennsylvania who had sent Crowan to the Miamis to renew the chain of friendship, and when the envoy returned, the assembly rejected his report. I was condemned, he says, for bringing expense on the government, and the Indians were neglected. In the same year, Hamilton again sent him over the mountains with a present for the Mingoes and Delawares. Crowan succeeded in persuading them that it would be for their good if the English should build a fortified trading-house at the fork of the Ohio, where Pittsburgh now stands, and they made a formal request to the governor that it should be built accordingly. But in the words of Crowan, the assembly rejected the proposal and condemned me for making such a report. Yet this post on the Ohio was vital to English interests. Even the pens, Proprietaries of the province, never lavish of their money, offered four hundred pounds towards the cost of it, besides a hundred a year towards its maintenance. But the assembly would not listen. The Indians were so well convinced that a strong English trading station in their country would add to their safety and comfort that when Pennsylvania refused it, they repeated the proposal to Virginia but here, too, it found for the present little favor. The question of disputed boundaries had much to do with this most impolitic inaction. A large part of the valley of the Ohio, including the site of the proposed establishment, was claimed by both Pennsylvania and Virginia, and each feared that whatever money it might spend there would turn to the profit of the other. This was not the only evil that sprang from uncertain ownership till the line is run between the two provinces says dinwiddie governor of virginia i cannot appoint magistrates to keep the traders in good order hence they did what they pleased and often gave umbrage to the indians clinton of new york appealed to his assembly for means to assist pennsylvania in securing the fidelity of the indians on the ohio and the assembly refused we will take care of our indians and they may take care of theirs such was the spirit of their answer he wrote to the various provinces inviting them to send commissioners to meet the tribes at albany in order to defeat the designs and intrigues of the french all turned a deaf ear except Massachusetts, Connecticut, and South Carolina, who sent the commissioners, but supplied them very meagerly with the indispensable presents. Clinton says further, The assembly of this province have not given one farthing for Indian affairs, nor for a year past have they provided for the subsistence of the garrison at Oswego which is the key for the commerce between the colonies and the inland nations of Indians. In the heterogeneous structure of the British colonies, their clashing interests, their internal disputes, and the misplaced economy of pennywise and short-sighted assemblymen, lay the hope of France. The rulers of Canada knew the vast numerical preponderance of their rivals, but with their centralized organization they felt themselves more than a match for any one English colony alone. They hoped to wage war under the guise of peace, and to deal with the enemy in detail, and they at length perceived that the fork of the Ohio, so strangely neglected by the English, formed together with Niagara the key of the Great West. Could France hold firmly these two controlling passes, she might almost boast herself mistress of the continent. End of section five.